If one required more proof than the account of the tribulation and that the account of the tribulation in Revelation was not recorded in the fashion of a linear narrative, all one need do is look at the sixth seal, which we did last week, and what immediately follows. The events revealed by the breaking of the sixth seal clearly foreshadow. They offer a coming attraction, as it were, the very end of the seven-year epic. But now we have chart 10. Here we zoom into the space between the sixth and seventh seals to reveal the parenthesis, the first parenthesis. We'll use this chart for this session and the next. As we will see momentarily, the events portrayed in the first of what I've termed parenthetical visions what others have called interludes, is something entirely different. It's, it's cinematic in its composition. Here the camera lens zooms out to encompass the entirety of the tribulation, seven years from beginning to end. Then it pans toward the beginning and zooms into tight focus on an event not mentioned at the beginning of the scroll but nonetheless occurring around the same time. The sealing of the 144,000, a remnant of Israel. A protected remnant of Israel. After that, it zooms out once again, pans to the other end, and zooms in to focus on something that will occur near the end of the tribulation. A glorious scene taking place around the throne of heaven, of those martyrs and others that we last saw under the altar at the breaking of the fifth seal. Chapter 7 reads like the script for a C.B. DeMille epic. And I wish I had the talent to show it that way, but maybe it's better this way. Scene 1, the, alting, the halting of the winds. Let's read our passage, the beginning of it, Revelation 7, verses 1 to 3. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. One learned commentator from the first part of the previous century writes, quote, these words describe the continuation of the action and course of events 
signified by the breaking of the sixth seal. It is therefore still the period of the judgment with which we here have to do. But in the midst of wrath, God remembers mercy. J.A. Seiss, 1901. With respect, I beg to differ. If the action described at the breaking of the sixth seal so cataclysmic and literally earth-shattering that we looked at last week has already begun, it is no doubt too late to protect the 144,000 sons of Israel. At great risk of being struck by lightning, I suggest that instead... Instead of remembering mercy, as Seiss said, something I'm sure the Lord God never forgets, God might have thought to himself, before we proceed further in this chronicle of judgment, I need to tell everyone what I did before this all started, as well as tell them what will happen at the end. So this first portion that we're looking at today in the parenthesis, shoots all the way back to the very beginning of the seven years. The second portion, which we'll look at next week, shoots all the way to the end. And I believe that seems to track better than the idea that this is just a continuation of a linear narrative, which there really isn't very much linear narrative during the tribulation. It, very little of it proceeds, boom, 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 boom. This happens, then this happens, and this happens. It's moving all over the place. What lies before us in chapter 7 is the first of four pauses in Scripture's narrative of the tribulation. Others refer to these as interludes, but I prefer to call them parentheses, for they contain important information. Very often, what you, when you're writing a paragraph, very often what you place in parentheses is a strong point that you want to emphasize. If you want to emphasize it a little more than that, you put it between M dashes. These interludes that others call them. They're not periods when we lean back in our chair and take a break or, or 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 look for some peace and quiet. They contribute to the story. They just do it out of order. Sometimes. They include important information critical to understanding the totality of the tribulation. They're not timeouts, but relay vital information bearing upon the whole. Now, if we could see chart number eight again, please, Simeon. If you remember chart number eight. These occur between the sixth and seventh seals that's where we're at now. The next parentheses is between the sixth and seventh trumpets. The things enclosed in cartouches between the trumpets and the bowls are a great number of 
a larger parenthesis, many, many commentators, many people who have charted this in the past, place those at the three and a half year mark. These right here, they place them at the three and a half year mark. Some of them belong there. I would, I would suggest that some do not. And then the final parenthesis, gathering for Armageddon between the sixth and seventh bowls of wrath. Now back to 10, please. My basis for placing what is described in verses 1 to 8 at the beginning of the tribulation is that even as early as the second seal, when things are seemingly just getting started, we have taking place war, which results in famine. Famine, which results in death. This is followed by the voices of martyrs for Christ crying out for justice and vengeance. By then it'd be a little late to be sealing from harm a large group from Israel. Just doesn't track very well. Contributing to this placement too is the narrative of the first three verses, especially verse three. Quote, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bond servants of our God on their foreheads. End quote. Well, if this were following in sequence after the sixth seal, if this were placed after the sixth seal, all three of those would already be greatly harmed. Finally, except for the act itself of sealing the 144,000, these three prefatory verses are filled with the metaphorical language of prophecy. Even so, as we'll see, it is metaphorical language and imagery common throughout God's Word. John sees four angels, supernatural messengers, standing at the four corners of the earth. Well, globes don't have corners, do they? They're round. But this language was used in antiquity much as we might say the four points of the compass. That's what it means. North, south, east, and west. Since we hear nothing in the rest of the revelation of these winds actually blowing in a harmful manner, the winds would seem to represent in general the earthly and atmospheric violence to be inflicted or permitted by God. So even the wind, which is a very real thing, is here used metaphorically to mean these forces that will harm the earth and harm people. These four angels possess the authority and power to inflict this damage. It says they are granted to harm the earth and the sea, but are here commanded to hold back that force temporarily until the bondservants or slaves of our God have been sealed on their foreheads. This command comes from, quote, another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, that is, out of the east. 
Some older commentators say this is Christ Jesus himself. I don't subscribe to that. I don't think the text gives us that at all. It says, quote, another angel. Even in the Old Testament, the Son of God, when active on earth, was called the angel of the Lord. Not just an angel of the Lord. He was always the angel. And after the Son's incarnation on earth and ascension, there's never again any reference to the angel of the Lord. Have you ever noticed that? You can scour the New Testament. There's no reference to the angel of the Lord because he'd already been here in flesh and left. This angel may well be, however, one of higher rank than the other four, for he bears, quote, the seal of the living God. This presumably strong angel commands the four to hold back their respective winds until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. Now let me pause there. Any, any, any questions so far? That's, that's the first scene. Anything, any questions or thoughts there? Boy, I scared him away last week. Okay, scene two, the eschatological remnant. Revelation 7, verse 4, And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And then those are all itemized. We take this text at its word. It's saying what it means. It means what it's saying. These are not Gentiles. Nor do they represent the church as the true Israel. How anyone can get that out of this, I just... I've read the commentators. I cannot understand why they're so insistent on standing on their heads and making Israel into the church or church into Israel. This passage speaks of Jews drawn from the 12 tribes of Jacob, sons of Israel. Likewise, while it's possible, possible, that John employs the number 12, 12 times 12,000, symbolically to represent all Israel, well, why not just write that? Why itemize so precisely an effective end-time Schindler's list of 12,000 from this tribe, 12,000 from this tribe? Why do all that when what you really mean is all Israel? These are Jews that will be protected and saved through the trials of the tribulation. They will be a remnant. Remnant. So why do all of that? Why list all that out? Why be so pedantic when what you really mean is all Israel or even worse, the Christian church? That just doesn't make any sense. 
The Apostle Paul in Romans 11 assures Christians that God has not forgotten what he promised Israel. And what we're seeing here, as well as in other portions of the eschatological narrative, is confirmed of that. Turn please to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, let's begin reading at verse 25. Romans chapter 11, verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. When we read, that's all, Scott, you can take a break. Go have a smoke if you want to. When we read in that passage, all Israel will be saved by the final judgment of the eschaton, it means all Messianic Jews calling Jesus the Christ, Savior and Lord, will be saved. There will be other Jews that will reject Christ still, that will, will, not re, will not accept Christ as the true Messiah. They will end in a bad way. And he says, I'm doing this to Israel for the sake of the Gentiles, but don't think I've forgotten what I promised Israel. None of what I'm doing for the Gentiles nullifies what I promised Israel. I haven't forgotten. The church is not the new Israel. Israel is still an entity unto itself. And he goes on to remind the Christians in Rome that, quote, just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. Clear as mud. God doesn't forget. And he's just like in the message this morning in Habakkuk. He's using this group to accomplish something in this group. And then he works, uses this group to accomplish something in that group. He's God. He can do that. He's in charge. Many have likened this seal that's my version of the seal up there with the Hebrew for Yahweh on it to many have likened it to the seal of the Holy Spirit possessed by Christians during the church age and I think in many respects it is that is an earnest 
given by God that he will fulfill, fulfill his promise of salvation and eternity with him. Now, the Spirit in Christians serves many roles. He serves many purposes. He comforts. He interprets God's Word for us. He's our umbilical to God, to God for His mind. He gets the connection going between us. He translates our groanings. But he also serves as a pledge, an earnest that God will fulfill his promise of eternity with him, of salvation. He says, how do you know that I'll do what I say? You have your spirit, the Spirit in you. It's placed there as, a, as an earnest, as a pledge. And at least in part, that's what he's doing with this seal of the 144,000. He says, I'm going to save you. And to show you that I will keep my word, you, you have this seal. I see no evidence that this will be a guarantee of an effortless existence. Just as with Christians today with the Spirit, there might still, they might still suffer trials or even persecution. But the seal will be a promise that they will not be destroyed or killed. They will be there to the end. And in fact, the word tells us they will rule with Christ on earth. They will be kept alive through the trials of the tribulation. Just as the promise he made to believers today. He didn't promise us a rose garden. You're going to have trials, you bet. Apparently, however, this seal, different from the indwelling spirit, will include a more obvious outward component, perhaps that will be recognized and honored by those intending them harm. We get more information on this outward seal in chapter 14, please turn there, where we meet these 144,000 again. Revelation 14. Verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. Now, note, the best manuscripts indicate that the expression in the King James versions having his father's name written in it on their foreheads, or in their foreheads, ouch, should be, the better manuscripts have, as all our other versions have, having his name, that is the Lamb's name, and the name of the Father written on their foreheads. On chart 10, the seal in the upper left corner of this parenthetical scene has the Hebrew for Yahweh, as I pointed out, the name Jesus or Yeshua is left out only because of space limitations. On the other hand, because in our text in chapter 7 it says just the name of God. Well, the name of God is Yahweh. The personal name of God. 
Some say that because the details are slightly different, that the group in chapter 14 is different from the one in chapter 7. But no, this is not a different 144,000. What we have here is that in, verse, in chapter 7, the, it's more general. The details of chapter 7 are more general, more broad, and in chapter 14, they're more specific. So we take from these two passages that the angel arising out of the east in chapter 7, verse 2, carries with him a seal or a stamp of sorts with which he seals or brands each of the 144,000. This visible sign is sufficient to turn away anyone wishing to do them harm. The idea being someone approaches somebody to kill them, they see that. Hands off. And the passage in chapter 14 confirms that God will keep his promise and protect them to the end. <clears throat> Permit me to offer some food for thought. We don't find, excuse me. We don't find many opportunities in this study to make personal application for us today, but here's one, I think. Let's, let's find some application for us in this. How would the conduct of your life be different on your, if on your forehead was branded follower of Jesus the Christ? So that everyone approaching you would see that. Would it be any different? Just this last week, Linda and I were in Menards, plumbing this time, and we were at the checkout line and I saw a young man, looked like a, was a worker, like he was, you know, did construction or something like that in front of us. And on, he was wearing a baseball cap that had Jesus all over it in different phrases. But it was clear, Jesus. And as I was looking at him, I suppose it's not a laudable thought process, but I, it, but I also think it's kind of a human thought process that I just watched him to see if his behavior matched up with what was on his head. And in dealing with this, I thought, hmm, what if not a baseball cap, but we had a brand on our forehead that said, owned by Jesus Christ? Would that affect, would that change the way we live? Where we go, what we do, what we say, the way we say things? I think it might. Sadly, I think it might. What we have in our hearts should do the same thing. But just a thought.
These Jews will be under the microscope, so to speak. And I believe these Messianic Jews will be strong, be a strong witness for Christ. We can only assume effective evangelists during the entirety of the tribulation period. So this passage is strong evidence for new believers during the tribulation. The church was taken out. Everyone who was a believer before the tribulation is gone. Any believers from here on out began, they accepted Christ as Savior and Lord after the tribulation began. If these from the tribes of Israel had been Christians, Messianic Jews prior to the tribulation, they would have been raptured as part of the church. If not confirmed by this passage, it is in chapter 14 that these are followers of not just Yahweh, but the Lamb. Thus they are indeed Messianic Jews. Thus they became so after the tribulation. So it's a pretty safe assumption then that their public and obvious allegiance to Christ during the turmoil of the tribulation will be a factor in even more people converted during this time. One might rightly ask, if the 144,000 represent the total number of Jews who come to Christ during the tribulation. That can be argued, but I don't believe it does. This is a remnant. The, the word makes it pretty clear that God says, okay, with this coming up, with this tribulation coming up, and with its focus on Israel, <clears throat> I'm going to save out. I'm going to save a remnant of Israel. 12,000 from each tribe. Doesn't say everyone. It's a remnant. So that at least this many from Israel will be saved to rule with Christ Jesus. There will be other Jews who do not believe or who do believe but are martyred or live through the entire tribulation. These are just set apart. They're sanctified. They're protected. Throughout the Chronicles, of his word recording his relationship with fallen man God has repeatedly set aside a remnant kept under his protective wings we see this in Noah and his family kept secure through the flood Rahab and her household kept safe as, safe as Israel destroys Jericho a remnant of Israel was kept in their homeland as the rest went into exile in Babylon and elsewhere. In these and others we see the grace, the mercy, the long-suffering of God, even when dealing with those who have been in rebellion against him and his statutes. Now, 
anticipating that some of you may have looked at this list of tribes and said, well, what about this one? Why is this one included, but not this one? Anticipating that, I have a sheet uh, that might answer some of that for you. If you're interested, I've got a few sheets. Just see Linda after the class that kind of works through that and discusses it. Now, I've left some time for questions or thoughts. Come on, be brave. Yes, Dan. I'm just curious, as you've been studying and researching this, and any idea where the number 12,000 came from? Just no, except, except the number 12 is always a special number in God's Word, much like seven, mm -hmm. 12 tribes, 12 disciples. Okay. Uh, 12 times 12,000, nice round number. I, I don't know. There doesn't seem to be okay. any that I could find. The 12 is, of course, Dennis. Well, I don't think it says in God's Word, but it's interesting. Uh, maybe it does, but I don't believe it does, to say how those 144,000 were saved. Obviously, it was or when they were saved. It had to be, like you said, it was during the, probably the first part of the uh, tribulation, but it, it just w it makes you wonder. I wonder God somehow worked in their hearts and, and they were saved. Do you have any ideas on that? That's a, that's a good point. That Thank you. I hadn't really thought about that before. Look at the timeline of this. If indeed this takes place, at the beginning, which I, I, it has to. If it takes place at the beginning, it's at the very beginning of the tribulation. The church is gone. Every Christian on earth is gone. So any new Christians are just that, new Christians. That's a good point. I, I did not find anyone who raised that point or even answered it. Could it be a special dispensation of the Spirit coming right after the rapture? I don't know. That's, that's an interesting point. I don't have an answer. Greg. Greg has the answer. Okay, good. He's going to settle it for us. Well, it seems to me uh, that the rapture is going to be such, a, such an event, a predicted event, that any student of Scripture is going to see that and say, and if they had dismissed it before as, no, I don't believe that that's going to be true, or I don't believe that Jesus is really the Messiah, but here's the rapture. Well, then I have to rethink things. And anybody that's serious about it, whether it be a 
person that has attended church for a long time but has never really made a personal uh, uh, commitment themselves or whether it's a Jew that's rejected and is still waiting for but still looking for uh, the Messiah, they have to, this, this is a time for reflection. This is a time to a reset because this is the two by four upside the head. The, the, this is something that they recognize immediately. Oh my gosh, I have got it wrong, or I have had it wrong, and uh, and with I, we we know obviously that the Holy Spirit will be involved with the conversion of every single one of these, but but between those two things. Uh, it's not surprising to me that an awful lot of people will come to faith in the beginning of the tribulation before all of these events occur, but after the rapture has occurred. I agree. I think that's very possible. We can't say for sure, but I think it's very possible. I would just play the devil's advocate and say, no one knows Scripture better than Satan. And there will still be those throughout all of this, who will reject it, who will stand against it. Why? Depravity of man. So I think both. There will be those who will know it forwards and backwards and still reject it. And there will be those who, and it could very well be. Yeah, think of all the Jews now who are waiting for the true Messiah to come. And here they should see evidence that, well, he's been here and gone, and he's coming again. Get your house in order. Now, when you think about it, 144,000 isn't that many. How many are in the world now? Nine billion, something like that? So, yeah, that's, I think that's a very real possibility. Yeah, anything else? Also, it said that they were virgin and no guile was found in their mouth. So does that uh, mean... You've looked ahead in chapter yeah. 14. Does that mean that they were never married? Well, <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so it'll be only men out of them, right? Yeah, I'm just confused. So those 144,000, it's men only that were taken. Where does it say that? I'm j I don't know. I just... I don't, it doesn't say that. Oh, okay. 12,000 from each tribe. Yeah. Now, when very often... Let's see, let's see. Let's, let's make sure here. It says, bond servants of our God in their foreheads. Heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Sons of Israel just revert, refers back to the original sons of, literally sons of Jacob. So if it says sons there, it's just saying the sons of Jacob. So you might be referring to 14.4. 14.4, okay. And Thank it you. says like they have not defiled themselves with women. That's what... Okay, well... This is a funny time in our culture to be saying that's restricted to men. <laughs> uh, 
based on chapter 7, and based on chapter 14, it looks like a toss-up where we can't say for sure. the men didn't have anything to do with women. The women didn't have anything to do with women. Maybe implied in that is that the women didn't have anything to do with men. The point being, they've been kept holy, sanctified, pure. Not just kept alive, but kept pure. And as such, then they will reign, 14 says, will reign with Christ on earth. Good, good question. Dangerous question. What else? I'm sorry, Dennis, you had your chance. <laughs> well, one more time. Zechariah 12.10. I wonder if that's... Uh, He says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Would that be part of it too? Is that a different, I forget. This this is more at the end of the tribulation. Zechariah 12 and 14 especially. Because it's, yeah, because they said they will see, look on him, so it'd have to be. That's, that's more around the time of, of the Armageddon, the Battle of Armageddon, mm-hmm. and uh, Christ comes, and mm-hmm. we read the passage last week where Christ stands on Mount Zion. Mm-hmm. That's when he returns. Mm-hmm. But I think through this, you could see the Holy Spirit is working yeah. <laughs> to save those. Yes, yeah. Greg's right. The, the, the Spirit is going to be at work during the tribulation, just, just in different ways. He's not going to be... It's just going to be different. Anything else? If you wish, you might want to bring that chart with you next week or just squint and look at the projection. Our Father, you've given us much to chew on here. We rely upon you and your spirit to answer our many questions, to clarify for us. Yet even with the mysteries, the euphemisms, the prophetic language, It only serves to emphasize your majesty, your glory, your sovereign rule over all things. Because of that, we fall down before you and exalt you, worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.